Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. It's so wild because people from the outside looking in, when all of the racial tension was happening in America, continues to happen in America, people were like, yo, why are all the Christian rappers tripping? What they weren't realizing is that we're a community and we're a family and we're all experiencing the same collective trauma together. Sometimes it's not even a sense of, I told him I was gonna do this and I told him I was gonna, it's like, we're just moving out of what we feel called to do. And I think it gave me more courage to be very bold and to go against the grain because I wasn't the only one. Mm. I was taking a lot of the public beating mm. and losing money and, and all of those particular things. But I knew at home my friends were grieved, were traumatized, were contemplating quitting their jobs, were struggling with their churches. And mm. it was a world that mm. was happening all around me. My music was just cathartic for mm. everyone. It wasn't mm. like this is just something Lecrae's dealing with. Mm. It was like, no, this is what the community yeah. is dealing with. This is Where You're From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Welcome to Where You're From. I'm Ross Sulberry. When we think about those who have risen to the top, we don't always consider how they got there. No one can do it alone. We often don't realize that the ladder of success is built and supported by a community who helps us climb greater heights than we could ever reach alone. Today, I'm excited to welcome for the second time, Grammy award-winning artist, author, and entrepreneur, Lecrae Devon Moore. During our first conversation, he shared about his personal background and evolution as an artist. And if you haven't heard it yet, you should definitely check it out. In this episode, Lecrae shares never heard before details about the formation of the 116 movement and how his road to success was paved with the help of a community of people that encouraged him, joined him, and supported him no matter what. Let's see where Lecrae is now and how he got here on this episode of Where You're From. I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, mm. and I'm loving it. Yes. You know, it's, uh, it's home. It's like... I don't know. I've, I've lived in a lot of places. This is the place that feels the most like home I've ever been. That's saying a lot. Because as we you know, heard in the first conversation we had, and go back and check that out if you haven't, you bounced around a lot yeah. in your adolescence, in your youth, and then even as an adult figuring out next steps. So yeah. that's a big statement to say Atlanta feels like home. Yeah. Yeah. It's massive. First of all, Lecrae, what does that name mean? It's funny because no one knows. <laughs> There's two different narratives. My mom says she initially was like, well, it's a mixture of your uncle's middle name and someone on your dad's side. But my dad said, I wanted 
no one to be like my kids. I wanted them mm. to be so unique and original. Yeah. And so I gave them all original names. That's what's up. See, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, a little bit of black girl magic with a <laughs> lot of originality. And that's yeah. how we get our names. You exactly. Know, and the spellings. <laughs> that's what's up, man. So which came first, your now wife or 116? Oh, <laughs> well... I met her before there was a 116. Okay. I met her as an 18-year-old kid. I thought she was attractive. She was in the Bible study. I wasn't yet converted, but I thought she was attractive. And I was like, man, but she's so Christian. Like, oh, my gosh, she's just like by the book Christian. So I was like, I'm a little too much of a irreligious individual for mm. her. So, you know, it took, it took some time. Okay. Yeah. Right, right. So... Tell us about when, you know, that time elapsed when it was like, okay, I'm ready to step Yeah, to so what's funny is that I was a curious individual. I didn't know much about the faith, mm. and I was a pseudo-intellectual. <laughs> so, you know, I want to go to the NAACP meetings. I want to go to everything. And I, I remember going to a Bible study because I was told to by a friend of mine and I was like I'll check it out and I didn't know anything I was like who is Ezekiel what is y'all talking and, and I was ashamed mm -hmm. that I didn't know this stuff and so I kept coming back and I remember being challenged that hey man like you have a faith but it's not like a faith that trusts in Jesus mm -hmm. I was like oh shoot I gotta get this like how do I get it so I kept coming around more and more and she was just very welcoming she was just always smiling and just happy and and so there was a conference that was coming up. It was called Impact Conference. Mm -hmm. um, we had to raise money in order to get a charter bus to go to Impact Conference. And so I was like, how do we raise money? I never, what, is, what does this mean? And so we were holding signs on the street corner saying, raising money to go to a conference, college students raising money. I was so embarrassed, but she was the only person that was willing to stand on that street corner with me. And she didn't care. Other people were washing cars, doing all kinds of stuff. And she was like, let's do it. Stand on the corner and just free spirited. And so we stood on that corner together. And I think that's kind of like where a friendship really developed. Wow. Ended up going to the conference. I became a Christian and really started investigating things. Uh, over the years, we just did Bible study together. And I mean, I'm talking about years, like eight years. Mm -hmm. We were just a part of the same campus ministry, and eventually it was kind of like, wait, why am I not pursuing this woman? Got it, got yeah. it. Okay, so what significance or role would you say she's had in the development of Hula Craze? Oh, my gosh. She's everything, man. Like, she's the solidarity, the sturdiness, the consistency. I can be very impulsive and just rash and just like masochist sometimes for like, yeah, let's do that. Arr! And she's like, hey, let's stop. <laughs> let's think. Is that wise? You know, early on, it felt like, I don't know, like a strict mom type of <laughs> vibe. But over the years, I've grown to appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And so she's kept me from making a lot of poor decisions. You know, you're talking about a kid who came from this marginalized community and background single-parent home. She grew up with a two-parent household. Her father was a minister. Mm. And so she had a sense of structure, solidarity, and family that was just so beautiful to me. Mm. And so every time I was around her, she brought that element. Every time I was around her family, I began to learn more about what this looked like. Mm. And so most of the models that I have currently in my family structure come from 
her family mm. and being around her. You know, and that's and that's fascinating. One of the things that's cool about you telling that story, especially I'm just picturing you on this side of the street in Dallas <laughs> with a sign trying to raise money to get to a conference. And that's an origin story. That's part of a process. And this person who was next to you, you were feeding off her faith mm-hmm. and the strength that she had. And even something that she was filling into your story that you didn't have that stability. And, for, yeah. and at the same time, not only were you connecting with Dara, but this other sense of connection and community was forming. Oh, tell us about that. Go to University of North Texas. I'm on campus. The young lady who I knew from high school says, hey, you should come to this Bible study that we do. An African-American Bible study called MOVE slash PV. So I go. I'm like, man, this is very interesting because I don't understand this whole college dynamic. I grew up around this huge disparity of like either you are like a thug in the streets or you're a nerd. And so I was like, how does this work? So I'm in college trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And I get into this campus Bible study and I'm expecting churchy kids, (laughs) like suits, ties, like just very churchy. And I remember a guy named Mac D, and he had No Limit tattoo on his arm. And I was like, yo, you, is this guy a Christian? And over and over again, my mind kept being blown to where I was seeing individuals who looked like me, talked like me, dressed like me, but they loved Jesus. Mm. Though most of the students in this college ministry were primarily suburban, kind of like African-American suburban Mm -hmm. middle class, there was a handful of us that were like from marginalized Mm. backgrounds. The streets, AKA (laughs) the streets. Yeah, you know, the streets. (laughs) And so so we kind of gravitated toward each other. You know, one of them was BJ Thompson, who no one would ever imagine today, he's like a public speaker and a life coach. Polished. Yeah, very polished, (laughs) you know. But he became like one of my closest friends and we were as thick as these because we had that similar background. Mm. Another was Tadashi Anderson, or you know him as Tadashi. Tadashi was that blend. He was extremely intelligent. I mean, the guy took AP classes as a kid, but he came from this single family situation, lived in a trailer park. It was rough. So we all meshed and merged as a part of like, I don't know, it was like hip hop culture. Then you got Show Baraka who you know, it was coming from the Inland Empire in California. There was just something there, like a chemistry, like, mm. hey, we all get the college vibe, but there's another side of us that need to be explored as well. Tell me a little bit about what was attractive to you to, like, say, I need to go deeper with these guys. And how does rap get yeah. into the mix of that? Well, you know, in the, the late 90s, early 2000s, you could identify people by what we would call hip-hop culture, yes, right? So hip-hop culture was like this overarching culture within the community that oftentimes included a style of dress, included Mm -hmm. music, included affinities. So when I would approach them or when I saw them, I said, oh, you're influenced by hip-hop culture, right? right? And so collegiate culture maybe at at this time was more like the polos and the khakis, khakis, you know. (laughs) But hip-hop culture was like, I'm going to class with my baggy tees on. And so it was like, hey, 
you're part of this culture. You can see it. Right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah. And you're wearing like triple XL. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> of course, because nothing nothing fit right. No. You know, back in that time period. Uh, matter of fact, if you can get a five XL, you're killing the game. <laughs> so it's like, oh, I'm doing big things. So I think that's how we found each other. And there was there were more of us kind of on the fringes. And we knew coming from the streets and from that kind of background that we had to lay something down for Jesus. We just didn't know what to lay down right. and how to lay it down. And so initially, it's the music, mm-hmm. right? Because the music is so influential for a, a 19, 20-year-old right. that you're like, yo, I got to put something else in my ears because all I'm listening mm. to is the regurgitation of everything that I'm trying to right. step away from. Who was the initiator of that to say, we should do something with music to express our faith? That's a good question. It wasn't me, but I can tell you what happened. The Bible study, the the campus ministry, they would do these freestyle sessions Mm -hmm. right after Bible study. And so a freestyle session would jump off. Most of them were pretty terrible, right? Mm -hmm. I'm new to the faith, kind of sort of, I'm listening to them and watching them. And you got very nominal college students trying to rap, right? (laughs) Right. So it was like, oh, cool. You know, they're making these, they're Jesus raps. And people are trying to talk about their faith after Bible study. At the time, Sho was at Tuskegee, but he would visit from time to time his brother. Mm -hmm. I remember Sho being phenomenal at rapping, like especially freestyling. He was like, wow, he's really good. And then I remember everyone loved Tadashi because Tadashi could rap so fast. Mm. You know, he was just like, and freestyle, you know, like coming off the top of his head, just making up stuff, but fast. And so I was like, wow, I just jumped in one of these ciphers. Mm. And so it just became a thing after Bible study. The three of us were like highlighted as the individuals who were going to jump in the cipher and really start freestyling. And this was something y'all walked into. It wasn't like y'all decided, let's do a freestyle cipher. It was just already happening. Campus culture. It was just the culture. Yeah. Okay. So y'all doing this on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So at some point, it has to pivot to yeah. this thing we do after Bible study to let's get in a booth and record a song. Right. So while I was in high school, and even after I left high school, I was always rapping. I had a good friend of mine who I would do songs with. We made production. We would record songs and, and do all this. We, we wanted to be like Pharrell and, and like, you know, be big. He got incarcerated, and I became a Christian, and that created wow. a gap between us. Mm-hmm. And while he was incarcerated... His grandparents let me use all his equipment. Mm. So I was in my apartment making music and recording music. I remember a friend of mine said, Lecrae, when you freestyle, you're dope, but your songs are trash. And I was like, well, okay, I got to step it up. (laughs) And so I remember really trying to step it up. And I went and recorded this song because at the time... The only place I really had to showcase my original songs was at this juvenile detention center that BJ and I volunteered at Mm -hmm. on the weekends. But my friends were saying, make something better. So I went and I created this song called Crossover. And everyone loved it. Okay, so tell us about Crossover and what that meant. So Dahadi had done this men's Bible study called Young Guns, led by the pastor in Denton. This pastor would take 50 guys every year and take them through the Bible. Mm -hmm. So I got accepted into this program. I think I was like one of two black people in the program. Mm. And I sat next to this guy, and he said, man, you got to meet my guy, Ben Washer. You know, I was like, okay, Ben Wah. Ben Wah knows about hip-hop. He worked at this sports camp called Kids Across America. He knows about Christian rap. And 
I said, dope, but where's he at? And then he came through the door. I'm expecting, like, some hood dude, you know what I'm saying? And I get this, like, 6'6", white guy, like, thin, wearing, like, Carhartts and, like, a, a, a polo shirt and some New Balance. And I'm like, well, what is this? But he really did know his music. He knew it because... He was a programs director at Kids Across America, which is a phenomenal Mm -hmm. Christian sports camp. Shout out KAA. Yeah. And he had to come up with the music for those kids. And so he was looking and listening to what they liked and Mm -hmm. just very intentional. So he knew what was current and what was out. Well, he had tasked me with making a theme song for KAA. Mm -hmm. And the theme was crossover. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, well, this one has to be good. You know, so there was a little more pressure than just making songs in my room. It's funny when you make songs in your bedroom and you think they're dope when you perform them usually like the bass is so heavy that everyone just rocks with it so I thought all of them were good in a sense but people kept saying something about this song to me and I'll never forget Will Reed he was like a financial advisor who was serving in the campus ministry just like in his free time you know what I mean and he came up to me and he he sat me down he said uh Hey, Lecrae, uh, I'd just like to talk to you, man. And I'm thinking he's about to give me some financial advice or something like that. He's like, hey, I was listening to Crossover, and uh, you really have a gift. You should pursue this. And that was like a responsible, mature adult right. telling me to be a rapper. Mm. And that it did something to me. Yeah. It made me say, oh, this song is special. I need to really do this. Yeah. You know. And it's interesting, as this is unfolding, I'm hearing the community. You know what's reminding me of? Like, remember Achille and the Bee? When she was studying for the B, and they had like even the hood dudes was like helping her. <laughs> yeah, rooting like, for her. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like the whole community got yeah. involved. It feels like that kind of community oh, yeah. vibe. So once that song hits, how does that impact the rest of Tadashi show, you know, those who you're around yeah. who are part of this thing that y'all were doing somewhat for fun? Well, it's crazy because Ben Washer has the idea to start a label mm-hmm. and put out my album first. So I have to make an album. And all I have is this crossover song, you know what I mean? And I thought to myself, I don't know how to make an album. I'm So I was like, I'm just going to get everybody I know who's a part of this campus ministry mm-hmm. to be a part of this album. If you listen to Real Talk, my first album, it is full of everybody else. I mean, represent is me and Tadashi and my man Clinton, God bless his soul, who's chanting on there. You got BJ on Heaven and Hell, you know, talking. You got my man Stephen Carter, who was a part of the campus ministry, singing on the project. You have my wife, Dara, and my homegirl, Jackie, doing the interlude for Wait. You got Show Baraka and another one of our homegirls on It's the Church talking. Mm. I mean, it was just all of us on one album mm. because I was like, it's not about me. It's about the community around mm. me. And so it, it was my album, but it felt more like a compilation album. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So album comes out now. Tell me about when does 116, right. you know, get on the scene. This is how 116 happened. BJ and I were close friends. I had, you know, kind of fallen away from the Lord, and he, he saw me at the gym, and he was like, yo, ain't you the dude Lecrae? I was like, yeah. He said, yeah, you you a part of the, uh, the Bible study type joint, right? I was like, yeah. This is before all that music stuff, right? And he said, yo, man, you should come back to the Bible study. And I was like, who are you, bro? Like, leave me alone. But I appreciated his candor his boldness right. and I ended up going back to the Bible study and so him and I became tight we could relate in a lot of ways well I come back Dahadi has this event called a sea retreat you know seeing everything eternally and the speaker 
was William Branch or Deuce from Cross Movement. Shout out Ambassador. Right, Ambassador. Yeah. And so he was like at the time the premier Christian rap artist. Like he was the guy. So he's speaking and I brought my Bible up to get autographed by him. Right. I don't he doesn't know me from Adam, right? And he signs my Bible and he puts Romans 116 inside. And so I look up the verse. Unashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. I was like, oh, unashamed. And it was just, I'm telling BJ, I'm like, BJ, this is dope. I was like, bro, we need to like, oh, dog, we need to be unashamed about this thing. It ignited something in me in terms of like a verse that told me to be bold. Mm. I grew up around gangsters and thugs who were bold about their gang, who were bold about their like, yeah, I represent. They were bold about their gang. I felt, if I'm honest with you, therapeutic moment, I felt I was less a man because I chose a different route. Mm. I felt I wasn't a man because I chose to go a different way. And this was my chance to say, oh, I'm still about this gang life, mm. but in a different way. Right. And so we went to Hobby Lobby. We got some iron on letters and we called ourselves 116 Click. At the time, it was C-L-I-C-K, 116 Click. <laughs> we didn't know how to spell click like a group of people. And it was, so it was initially just me and BJ. Wow. And, and we would just go around campus with the 116 Click shirts on, sharing the gospel with people. We would go to the hood. We would go to like the clubs. And after people got out the club, we shared the gospel. People talked to people and people spit in our faces. And we were like, yeah, we got persecuted for Jesus. We out here, man. And, wow. and it, that's really how it, it really began. And then it just got contagious. It was mm. like, yo, BJ and Lecrae are like some hood Christians, but they are really about this life. Mm. And people started tagging along and people who kind of identify with us rocked with us. And so then it's Tadashi and lots of other people who didn't rap were, were rolling with us. When we come back, Lecrae will explain how he sees a trend in our culture and society of excluding certain groups of people, especially those in prison. Lecrae will also share about one of his biggest mistakes. That's coming next on Where You're From. If you're enjoying Where You're From, would you take a moment to write a quick review and give us some stars? Podcast platforms like iTunes and Google promote highly rated shows. So a one-sentence review of what this episode or show means to you and a quick five-star rating will help these important stories reach more people. Thank you for your help and keep listening for more of Where You're From. This episode is brought to you by smallgroups.com. Find everything you need to build, grow, and maintain a healthy, thriving small group ministry. Smallgroups.com equips you to develop your ministry model and train your leaders, to nurture spiritual growth in group members, to troubleshoot typical group problems, and also to avoid common pitfalls. Whatever your role in developing life-changing community, we have resources for you. Visit smallgroups.com today. Hey there, friends. My name is Jade Gustafson, and I'm one of the producers for Where You From. Before we jump back into our conversation with Lecrae, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next episode with hip-hop artist Wande. This is Where You From. Even if you say it, oh yeah, I'm gonna be a rapper, like it just sounds impossible. But obviously with God, all things are possible. So hey. the Lord definitely just told me like, nah, this is what I designed you to do. It's what I need you to do. And I was like, oh God, like you make me feel uncomfortable. 
But one thing I learned is whenever you're walking with the Lord, he's going to call you to do uncomfortable things sometimes. Mm-hmm. And he showed me a dream. And I was at a youth camp and there was a girl rapping. She was doing a great job, phenomenal job. And I have a friend who turns to me, we're in the audience watching this girl rap. And she was like, yeah, this is like life changing. Like, this is amazing. I've never seen anything like this. And then like the lights shut down and it's like a spotlight on me. And then the Lord was like, oh, I was supposed to use you to do this, but you didn't listen to me. Welcome back to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. And in just a moment, we'll jump back into our conversation with Lecrae. But before we do, just a quick reminder that the show notes are available in the podcast description. They not only contain the talking points for today's show, but some links to learn more about Lecrae and his label, Reach Records. Also, keep an eye out for our conversations with other artists from Reach Records coming up on Where You're From. You can find these links in the show notes or by visiting whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from.org. Now let's get back to our conversation with Lecrae on where you're from. All right. So you guys are being known as those dudes out there sharing their faith. So when does it become a thing connected to that? Yeah. So I think because it was already like a a group within a group, like you got the campus Bible study, you got this little group of 116, right? It's like all the little hip hop dudes. The radical. Yeah. You know, so we're in there. We're like, yo, let's make a compilation album with everybody because there's so much talent in this whole situation that we have. And so let's make a compilation album. And so, you know, show was always on the fence. You know, show's like the contrary. And he's like, oh, 116 click. I don't know. I'm show Baraka. I'm a me show Baraka. You know, I'm show. I don't, you know, but he loved the idea and he loved the passion. And so he entertained us. And he was like, yeah, I'll, I'll do this dance with y'all. I love y'all, brothers. You know what I mean? And so he contributed. But he represented with us, you know, and he appreciated what we were doing. And then eventually he's like, nah, you know what? I'm a part of this. You know, this is my tribe as well. It was just trying to highlight everyone's gifts. Yeah. You know, I'm a huge catalyzer. Mm. So I thrive when I see other people taking their gifts and going crazy. So I couldn't wait to put everybody on a compilation. Uh And I was like, yes. Okay, so I love that, you know, you kind of describe show as a contrarian, which anybody who knows show knows that that's true. (laughs) Like, fill out the rest of the roster in terms of the personalities and the characters. Okay, I mean, you have show who is the contrarian, who's kind of like, hey, you know, I got my own kind of perspective and... What if we tried this? Right. If everyone, but what about this? Yeah. <laughs> if everyone likes it, something might be wrong with it. You know what I mean? That show. You have Tadashi. Tadashi is the processor. So he's bold and like powerful, but he's also like gentle and processing. So very well informed. And you have to always remember with Tadashi, yes, he grew up in the trailer park and played football, but he's also an AP student. You know, so there's that dual yeah. side to him mm-hmm. that you get. Then you got Trip, Trip Lee, who was the kid at the time. You know, he was a 16-year-old kid. Yeah. I call him the sponge because mm-hmm. he has this unique gift of being able to take information, digest it, and make it his own. Mm-hmm. Like like that. Like mm-hmm. I remember spending months going through the systematic theology series. And then I finished it and I was like, yo, Trip, you should check this out, man. You know, I'm trying to disciple him and like, yo, you should check this out. And then like three days later, he's like, yo, you got anything else? I was like, you did you finished it? <laughs> he's like, yeah, I already finished that. I was like, tell me what you learned. He could spit it all. Wow. And so he was like the sponge and we just knew he was special, mm. you know. Yeah. And yeah, so as 16, far as the artist. I mean, that's yeah, amazing. All 16, yeah. 17 years old. Yeah. Yeah. And BJ's piece too, because, you yeah. know, he was clearly a well, part. Yeah. It's funny because BJ is always like 
<laughs> in hip hop terms, like if you're familiar with hip hop, BJ is the flavor flav, the, <laughs> the, hype, the man. hype man. You know, he's all the personality. He's like, I have a voice mm. that needs to be heard. And at the time, it was only through rap. But now as we've matured, he's realized I don't have to just rap for my voice to be heard. Wow. So now also on the compilation, there's Thistle, Jason. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Can't forget Thistle yeah. and Jason. So the crazy part about that was, you know, they were kind of elite. Philly rap was elite in Christian rap. You know, so it's like. Shout out Philadelphia. Yeah, they yes. were the elitists. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We were just these podunk Southern boys. And they were like, yeah, you know, they cool and everything. But you know what I'm saying? I mean, they the you know, it's like they just look down their nose at us, you know. Which I mean? was the whole East Coast vibe toward the South in general. In general, at that point. yes, I for must sure, confess. for yeah. sure. Yeah. So you know, but we were still like puppies. Like we loved them. We what? Oh, do they like us? Do they like us? Does right. he like me? And they had signed Flame, mm. and so it was like finally somebody that we can connect with. And Flame was just like, hey, I'm down with everybody. So we connected with Flame. And Flame was like a brother. And then through Flame, I found out about Thizzle and Jason because they were all from St. Louis and they were his friends. And so I remember pulling up to St. Louis for a show. Unbeknownst to me, Thizzle had actually booked me for some kind of program. And so that's when I really got to meet them all. And I was like, oh, they're like us, mm. you know, like do-rags and baggy jeans and hood stories. Mm. Like these are just our type of people. But they love Jesus. Right. And we were really getting like seminary level theology poured into us mm -hmm. and they weren't. So we saw it as our responsibility mm. to like whatever we got to eat, they got to eat. So we would drive, like we take a caravan of like 10 people from Denton, do mission trips in St. Louis, take wow. all the ladies and the fellas down there and bond with them and just be in the hood. You know, like wow. some of the suburban kids from our ministry was like, is that crack? Oh my <laughs> gosh. So all that to say, Jason and Thizzle became like extended family. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, we're all part of this big family. Jason is like very aggressive, passionate, in your face, like, dog, if you don't trust Jesus, you dog, it's a rap for you, you know. And Thizzle was like the hustler, you know, it's like. <laughs> the tales that he would tell. Oh, man. I, it'd be, it, and paint the picture for you. That man. brother could paint a picture. All right. So you put out this project, which I just remember being one of those Philly hip-hop elitists, being like, <laughs> man, these guys are actually bringing heat. Yeah. What was the response and the re reaction? And when did you know 116 was not just this little thing that was a subset of a subset yeah. <laughs> on campus, but something that had identity and resonance with people? I've always been a catalyzer. I've always been like, hey, how can we make it bigger, mm -hmm. better? How can we put, like, inject something into the culture? And I knew... Yes, the East Coast was on top, but I lived in the South. Mm. And every time I turn on the radio, it's Lil John and everything else. And all my friends at the club, I knew what they were listening to. So I was like, no one's making music for them from God's right. vantage point, yeah. you know? So I knew it was a matter of time. I just didn't know it would be us. Mm. I knew this music needed to be made. Right. And so initially, I was just doing it for the folks on campus. And then it was like, I guess I'm doing it for folks in Dallas. I guess I'm doing it for folks in Texas. I guess I'm doing this for folks in the South and the Midwest. I guess I'm doing this for the USA. And it just kept expanding. There was not like a moment for us because mm -hmm. it kept happening. We were always shocked and we, we loved it. I, you know, someone was like, hey, will y'all come to Indianapolis for a show? 
And we were like, yeah. They was like, all we got is 100 bucks. I was like, BJ, they got 100 bucks for us up there. Maybe we could sell some CDs. Me and BJ jumped in a car and mm. drove to Indianapolis from Texas. And for $100. $100. You can't even get there. That's not even gas money. Man, that's amazing. So one of the things that I think what I'm hearing from you is that Oftentimes people think of the story of Lecrae, but as you tell it in this context, it's really the story of a community. For sure. You know, not oh, just, sure. you know, and that's how you saw it. And like you said, you get as much enjoyment from catalyzing the thing or mobilizing as you did from seeing you get particular success. Yes. So let me ask you this then. So we're going fast forward. Yeah. Because, you know, you have a line in Restored. You know, you're talking like from the devil's perspective. He's trying to discourage you. Said you had fake faith. Mm. starting to race bait. Now I can't even take dates, mm. right? So I'm curious about what that line meant and the response and the reaction toward you meant for the entire group. Oh, man. And the 116, because essentially the very identity of what you were known for, yeah. being unashamed, was actually being challenged in question. Yeah, tell me about that, that part of the story that people don't often think about. It's so wild because people... From the outside looking in, when all of the racial tension was happening in America, continues to happen in America, people were like, yo, why are all the Christian rappers tripping? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, in their mind, they're thinking that there's some kind of Christian rap convention and we're sitting down and we're like, hey, let's all agree on these. First specific- order of business. <laughs> exactly. Trayvon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. What they weren't realizing is that we're a community and we're a family, and we're all experiencing the same collective trauma together, sometimes it's not even a sense of, I told him I was gonna do this, and I told him I was gonna, it's like, we're just moving out of what we feel called to do. And I think it gave me more courage to be very bold and to go against the grain because I wasn't the only one. Mm. I was taking a lot of the public beating and losing money and and all of those particular things. But I knew at home my friends were grieved, were traumatized, were contemplating quitting their jobs, were struggling with their churches. Mm. It was a world that Mm. was happening all around me. My music was just cathartic for Mm. everyone. It wasn't Mm. like this is just something Lecrae is dealing with. Mm. It was like, no, this is what the community is dealing with. There were constant gatherings at each other's houses Mm. and constant wrestles and constant grieving and crying and mourning and struggles and it wasn't me in a silo. Now, I will say this, we didn't all agree, mm. right? We all agreed there was a problem. We didn't all agree on how we should address it, mm. right? And so yeah. that caused some tension, you mm. know, in the community, but we all loved each other and we're family, so yeah. we figured out ways. And one thing I hadn't thought about before, but you talked about these mission trips that you and these groups of people were taking to St. Louis. Mm-hmm. That's Ferguson. Ferguson. So how did Mike Brown and just that whole situation impact you in light of the fact that this wasn't conceptual for you? You've yeah. been there. Yeah. This is the crazy part. I think I live in multiple worlds. Some of my friends really just live in a black context, mm-hmm. right? So I live in multiple ethnic spaces all the time. The tough part was that I thought I was going crazy. Because all my friends who lived in these predominantly black contexts were like, yo, this is injustice, this is crazy, this is wild. Look at this, look at what's happening. Especially my friends in St. Louis, they're like, yo, this was on the front lines. He was out there at the protests, everything, right? 
And yet, when I got around predominantly white context, it was crickets. Mm. It was silence. And so I'm like, maybe I'm tripping. Maybe it's not that deep. Maybe it's nothing because it was silence. And I was like, yo, am I, am I tripping? And then when I bring something up, it's like, hmm, don't break the law. You know, mm. and so I was like, maybe I am going crazy. Mm. And it really was a tough time for me. And so for me to speak out was to really go against the grain. I knew it was going to cause a rift over here and I knew it was going to be a struggle. But it was like, I'm seeing this mm -hmm. and I can't deny what I'm feeling mm -hmm. and I can't deny when I'm in my context, these realities mm -hmm. that are happening. And so and that was a tough time, but we worked through it together. Yeah. In terms of even the challenges, because that was just the one part, the political dynamic, but then there's also the music mm -hmm. approach, philosophy of oh, ministry, yeah. which specifically relates to this unashamed thing, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How did that impact the communal identity, gravity comes out, church clothes, and all of a sudden, oh, they used to be unashamed, but now they seem to be ashamed. Y'all got tats, 116. It's like on your skin. Right. How did that impact y'all as a collective to all of a sudden have a backlash where people are challenging the very identity that you had developed? We thought it was going to die. We really were like, yo, this thing's got to just die, this whole 116 thing, mm -hmm. because it's too closely related for us to a political agenda. You know, and so sometimes terms are not helpful, right? Like evangelical began to be more of a term that caused dissension and mm. contention than it was helpful for identification, mm -hmm. right? And so it's like, mm, I don't know if it holds the same weight as it did 20 years ago. Now it feels like it's more of a political term mm. than a Christian term. Right. And so for us, it was Even feeling a like culture war type exactly. dynamic approach. Yes. Yeah. And so we were like, man, is 116 more of a political agenda, a theological camp than it is about being unashamed of the gospel of Jesus? Hmm. And that's what it was feeling like. Okay. And so no one wanted to represent it anymore. Hmm. No one wanted to wear the T-shirts internally. Right. No one wanted to be about that. And we had already been struggling with that. If you notice, like even some of the unashamed tours, it was like, we want to be unashamed of being forgiving. We want to be unashamed of all the aspects of who Christ was. And the response to that was, see, see, look, they changed their mission. <laughs> exactly. They now just give me in a nutshell. Why was that misunderstood? Yeah, it was misunderstood because we wanted to expand upon, not do away with. We wanted to give clarity that being unashamed of the gospel was not a self-righteous, arrogant motto. Right. It was more about being unashamed to be identified with a Savior who is gracious, loving, kind, mm -hmm. gentle, understanding, empathetic. Right. And the gospel transforms us into walking in his footsteps. Right. That's what we were trying to Got it. communicate. Clearly something happens because 2016 trip drops still unashamed, mm -hmm. which kind of feels like, oh, yeah, that there's a reclamation act going on. Is there been a sense of a point in which that has been reappropriated and absorbed and expanded? What does that look like now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it took a lot of internal conversation. I mean, there's definitely some people who left internally, not artists, but some people who said, I can't rock with this anymore. Mm. I feel like it's been co-opted by a political or cultural war agenda. Right. And they said, I have to move on. Mm. You know, some great people that were a part of building everything. Mm. But there were some of us internally who were wrestling and processing, and we processed together, and we pushed back on each other, and we mm. kept thinking through stuff. We sent articles and scriptures and process and say, you know what, man, this verse is still true. 
this is a part of what it looks like to be unashamed right. is to deal with the blowback and the misunderstanding, mm, right, <laughs> right? Right. It reignited a fuel in us to say, yeah. you know what, man, Christ is still the center of our joy, even in the midst of the grief and the mourning. And so we are. We're still mm. unashamed. Matter of fact, we're more unashamed because he just carried us through wow. the darkest of times. That's dope. Yeah. That's a great turning point, too, because the other think framework that's been expanded hasn't just been the word unashamed, but even, I think, essentially the gospel itself. Mm. You've started to be involved in many more things. Tell us about the expanded work and how that relates to an expanded understanding of the gospel. Yeah, so the expanded work is still being a catalyzer. If you think about it, Brian Rich talks about a cross-shaped gospel where there's a vertical aspect of the cross, mm-hmm. but then there's also a horizontal aspect. And the vertical is how we relate to God, but the horizontal is how we're relating to other people. Mm-hmm. And so for me, there's a sense of how am I supposed to relate to other people? Is it simply just to share a message, or is there a sense of bringing what Christ bring, which was peace, which was shalom, Mm. which was a picture of an upside-down kingdom where the first will be last, the last will be first. It was a sense of transforming culture. I think there's gospel implications, Mm. right? And what are the implications of the gospel? How does it transform us? Well, it makes us do better business. It makes us care about the marginalized. It makes us create opportunities for people to thrive. It looks out for people. And so for me, I'm like, okay, Let's begin to do some of these things. Well, how do we do these things? How do we create opportunities where there are none? Some of that is in the business realm. How do we help in the educational fields? The long way I put it is I remember being on a flight and I was watching Ben-Hur. And in the the story of Ben-Hur, you know, obviously he's this Jew that's now participating in these chariot races that were frowned upon by the Jews, right? Mm -hmm. The Romans had these chariot races. Well, he starts competing and then he ends up winning. Mm-hmm. And the Jews who were frowning upon him were kind of like, well, shoot, I mean, you know, a Jewish guy won. And they go to the Roman emperor and they say, man, I'm so sorry, man, that the Jews have won a chariot race. And the emperor says, I don't care. As long as they're playing our game, that's mm-hmm. all I care about. Wow. And so the empire is only concerned with us playing the game. The kingdom is really what we should be after. It's kingdom over empire. Empire will crush you in order to win. Kingdom says, how do we all thrive and paint a picture of thy kingdom come, yeah. thy will be done. I was going to ask you, what's been theological or biblical framework that helps you see the value of a kingdom mm. framework of the gospel as opposed to, a, I guess, an individual or empire one? Yeah, I mean, you can look at everything that God was doing in the Exodus. They were under a sense of empire yes. in Egypt yes, consistently. Yes. And that's all they knew. And that's how they function. And so he rescues them and then gives them commands. He doesn't give commands first and then rescues. It paints a picture that, hey, we're not here trying to earn our way to God. It's Mm. like God's going to rescue us and then he'll Mm. instruct us on how this thing should work. And, And those instructions are about community, are about not coveting what each other has. How do I celebrate this person for what they have instead of coveting the things that they have? How can I create opportunity and space? It's just a sense of working together for something bigger and more eternal, for a promised land that's to come. That's an interesting way to put it. So essentially, by looking at Egypt, which was the largest empire, Mm -hmm. and that's related. You get to be that large by exploiting humans, trafficking in them, and making them do what it takes to build your wealth. Yes. 
And so you're saying God rescued them from that situation mm. and then gives them a set of principles and laws that undermines the very situation, which is why he said, remember, you were slaves in Egypt. Yes. So now be kind to the foreigner. foreigner. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. So give everybody rest. Yes. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. So allow the poor to glean from, from your fields. fields. Yes. So all of that comes out of this sense of I'm going to go from empire to kingdom. Yes, absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. And so we're always looking back at that. Christ is constantly painting a picture back at that reality. And that's why he could challenge the Pharisees in a way, because they knew those stories. They knew the Torah. So mm. it was like, ah, shoot, I can't argue with him on mm. this, you know. Mm. And so he's constantly painting that picture of who's your neighbor, of taking care of the poor, even like him extending himself to folks that they would say, what are you doing dealing right. with these people? Yeah. So. So let's take that into what you're doing now, right? Because you've made some news recently with the original hip hop track contest. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that and how that relates to this idea of kingdom. Yeah. So essentially, I've always been enamored with marginalized communities mm -hmm. and just like, yo, like I come from this. Who's going to care about these people, mm -hmm. you know? And the incarcerated population is one of the most marginalized because no one cares about them, mm -hmm. right? They've already made their mistakes. Pay your debt to society. Mm -hmm. People are not realizing that there's individuals who are incarcerated who are waiting trial. They haven't even been convicted yet, and they're still being mistreated. There mm -hmm. are individuals who are incarcerated that did not commit the crime. Mm -hmm. You're writing them off and lumping them in mm -hmm. with people who may have done some terrible things. But what the gospel should compel us to do is forgive even those who've done these right. terrible things. And so we've always tried to do things, visit the prisons. Restoration was released in prison before it came out for the world, wow. you know. And so when we did that, then we said, hey, what else can we do? So we worked to create a program where we'll let their voices be heard because they're so, so talented in there. Mm. And so it was like, hey, let's create a contest where they can create submissions and we'll put their song out. And all the proceeds go back toward organizations that serve the prison population, wow. like prison fellowship. Man. So. so you're actually doing a competition yeah. where those who are incarcerated get to contribute mm -hmm. and make songs. Yeah. And those songs get evaluated by who? Morris Brown, you know, the music department in Morris Brown, they evaluate and bring it down to the top 25. And then I come in on the top 25 wow. and say, all right, which one? And then I'm going to jump on the track with the, the top song. Get out. Yeah. I'm gonna wow. Jump on Why did you select Morris Brown? Again, you know, we're talking about marginalized communities. So it's another opportunity to put Morris Brown on the map as well. That's amazing. And I don't know if you thought about this, but in the context of our conversation, when we started, you talked about how the very way that you got equipment and started doing the song in the first place wow. was your friend was incarcerated. Didn't even realize that. Who was obviously talented. Yep. And now this thing comes full circle where you're giving opportunity for people who are incarcerated. Yeah, that's crazy. Your career starts by you realizing you're good because of you visiting juvenile detention centers. <laughs> Right. Now you're giving them an opportunity. You want to know what's really wild? This is really crazy. This is how you know some supernatural stuff going on. I don't even know. My first mixtape where I first heard rap ever in my life was at a halfway house. My mom worked at a halfway house. Mm. And one of the people who was transitioning out of prison slid me a tape and said, yo, little man, check this out. And it was the first time I heard hip hop for real. Wow. And I listened to all those songs. It was like LL, Beastie Boys, Run DMC. Yeah. And I was like, what is this? Wow. So that's what put you on. And when you think about all the talent and the ability that 
people have forgotten about, but that's there. That, that's right. incredible, man. And we can't have this conversation without asking, well, what's next for yeah. the 116 click? What's next for Unashamed? Yeah. Well, obviously, we're working on a, a feature documentary that's mm-hmm. highlighting everything that we have done, that we are doing. And so I'm really excited about that. Some phenomenal people involved in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I created with some of my good friends, a production company called Three Strand. So Three Strand is helping produce this project as mm. well. So that's exciting. Yeah. And then, you know, I'm always working on music. Why the name Three Strand? Three Strand. A three-strand chord is not easily broken. Yeah. Out of, uh, Ecclesiastes. In this context, who are the three strands? So me, my buddy Adam Thomason, and Ben Washer. Wow. So it goes back to the community back again. Back to the community. Just one last thing, because in the context of 20 years of being involved in this mm. space, yeah. Everybody makes mistakes. You look back, missteps. You kind of allude to that in some of the music. Oh, yeah. What's something that, as you look about the either inception or some of the shifts of 116 or Unashamed, that if you look back, you would, man, I wish I had a do-over on that. Mm. I think there was a season around Anomaly where mm. I really began to rise. I did allow a sense of individualism to mm. take over. Yeah. And I think... The voices that were around me consistently, I did not bring them in as close as I should have yeah. during that season of time. And it's because I thought I was breathing new air. I was like, well, you guys don't understand what it's like, you know, hanging out with Beyonce, guys. It's just rough out here. You know, it's a different kind of ministry. You know, <laughs> So I think the pride of life, man, in that mm. season of my life, it's funny because people look at like all things work together. It's like, oh, you're falling. You're going left. And it's really like, no, I was left when I was self-serving. It self-served me to just say Jesus's name a million times, even though internally I was struggling. Mm. And so all things were together was me saying, look, I can't fake this thing. Yeah. You know, I got to be honest. And so I think I would have pulled in my community more during that season if, mm. I, if I could do it. Yeah, that's what's up. Yeah, facts, you were going through some things. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, it made for a great song, but it was yes. like, wow, that came from a place. Well, I'm so glad to hear that you've kind of had that restored Mm -hmm. and then you're also paying it for it and restoring others thanks so much for joining us again my man i appreciate it man thank you lecrae has a lot to say about community and creating connections with those who have been rejected or forgotten it's so dope to hear the backstory of how lecrae got to where he is and how what he's learning can help us to bridge gaps with those around us I'm excited to see what's coming next from Lecrae and 116. This is where you're from. I'm Russell Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Mary Jo Clark, Daniel Ryan Day, Ryan Clevenger, and Jay Gustafson, and was engineered by Gabrielle Boward and Kevin Burgess. Also want to give a quick shout out to Barry and Brian for their help in supporting and promoting where you're from. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.